Today, we visit two of the great speeches in the history of cinema. We discover the little-known, and I'm pretty sure never before mentioned, connection between an alien space invasion and Newt Rockney. We discuss the best criterion for buying a new car. We discover three questions that lead towards an authentic faith journey, all on the way to answering the question, what is the greatest movie speech? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. So what is the greatest speech in the history of filmmaking? Well, of course, I can't definitively answer this question because I haven't and I think this is obvious, even watched every single English-speaking film ever made. And there are certainly a lot of great films made in languages that I don't speak, so I therefore don't know about them either. But but if you were to ask me the greatest speech from the films that I have watched, I would readily name two. The first and greatest, well, greatest in terms of the most stirring film speech I've ever watched, was delivered by the actor Bill Pullman, who at the time was playing the President of the United States. And the movie is Independence Day, and if you've seen the movie, you already know exactly what I'm talking about. In the movie, the entire world is about to be overwhelmed by a space alien invasion, and the forces of the United States, well, in this movie, what's left of the forces of the United States, in conjunction with other remaining forces from other countries around the world, are about to jointly launch a last-ditch effort to save the world. The President of the United States pauses to speak to the people who are about to go forth into this air battle against the alien forces. Good morning. Good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. But from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live. To exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday. But as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day.
Now, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was sitting at my computer and I played this particular audio clip on my computer and my daughter, who was sitting nearby, heard it. Our daughter, who's home for the holidays from graduate school, and she said, that's the greatest movie speech of all time. It makes me tear up and get goosebumps every single time I hear it. And I would have to say, yeah, me too. Now, this speech is moving because, and this is obvious, but because it's a motivational speech. It's not really a speech that you carry with you as a guide to life. There's a lesson to be learned. Perhaps we could remember that the struggles that face our planet should serve as a reason to unite all people. But in truth, this isn't really a words-to-live-by kind of speech. This is more of a win-one-for-the-gipper kind of speech. Which, if you don't know that phrase, win one for the Gipper is a phrase borrowed from a 1940s movie speech and was used to get a football team motivated to win the game. There is another speech from a movie that was not quite such a box office blockbuster as Independence Day was, but it's still a great movie and contains what I think most people would consider one of the kind of top 10 great speeches in English film. And it is for me though not as stirring as the Independence Day speech, it is more thought-provoking. So perhaps, perhaps an even better speech. This movie is called Secondhand Lions. And like Independence Day, it has some of the biggest stars in the current Hollywood pantheon. It has Michael Caine, Robert Duvall. It is the story of a 14-year-old boy whose mother is... Well, let's just say she's a horrible mother. She has other things in life she wants to do rather than raising her son, so she ultimately decides to dump her son on his two great uncles. And they're not really interested in taking him. This is not something they're excited about. It's not something the boy's excited about. The movie is really the story of how these three people who don't want to be together discover that they need each other and ultimately wind up rescuing each other and living happily ever after. There is a point in the movie where the kid asks one of his uncles if something is true. And the uncle says, it doesn't matter if it's true. And the boy says... It does. Around my mom, all I ever hear is lies. I don't know what to believe in. And then the uncle gives him the speech. Around my mom, all I hear is lies. I don't know what to believe in. Damn, if you want to believe in something, then believe in it. Just because something isn't true, that's no reason you can't believe in it. The long speech I give to young man sounds like you need to hear a piece of it. It's peace. Sometimes the things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in the most. The people are basically good. That honor, courage, and virtue mean everything. That power and money, money and power mean nothing. That good always triumphs over evil. And I want you to remember this, that love True love never dies. Remember that boy. Remember that. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, you see. Man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. 
Got that? That was a good speech. Think so? Thanks. The first time I ever heard this speech, I sat on the edge of my seat in the theater. I was waiting for truth. I was waiting for direction. I was waiting for guidance. I think most of us, if you've ever watched this movie, you probably had the same experience. I think most of us who watch this movie find ourselves living into the character of the 14-year-old boy because we live in a complicated, sometimes confusing world that's filled with uncertainty. And as I said, confusion. And we, we're we looking for guidance all the time. We're looking for direction to help us along the way. But for me, I sat there in the theater waiting for direction. And what I wound up hearing was, yeah, if something's true, it doesn't matter. It was a great movie, but I remember walking away from the theater feeling a little hollow. Well, I should say a little disappointed about the speech. The rest of the movie's wonderful. After the uncle gives the speech, the boy says, that was a good speech, as you heard. I just remember thinking in the moment, no, no, it wasn't. I've had 20 years to sit with the speech since I first saw the movie, and I will have to admit that it's gotten better and better every year. Someone reached out to me not long ago to ask some questions about some things I'd said in my podcast, and I realized that I say things that don't sit easily with some people, and I'm happy to respond to questions the listener wanted to ask. So he wrote me an email with his questions, and I answered those questions, and then he responded with more questions, and I answered those, and then he responded with more questions after that. Now, let me just say for a moment, as kind of an aside, when I was in college, I remember that someone had done a study on the way men differ from women when asking questions. Say, take an expert who's brought in by a professional organization to talk about a newly developed theory in their field. When the speech is over, there's often a time of questions and answers. Now, here's the thing that the study discovered. On average, when you have that kind of situation, men tend to ask king-of-the-hill type questions. Their questions are meant to challenge or establish dominance. Their questions are kind of meant to say, you have spoken and I'm going to try to challenge you. I'm going to find a question that I think you can't answer. And if and only if you can take all that I can throw at you and answer all of my questions, then I will respect you. Until I find a question you can't answer to dethrone you later, that is. Women tend to ask clarifying questions or relationship-building questions. You said this about your theory. I found that really interesting. Could you say more? Now, back to the person who reached out to me with questions about my podcast. In this case, the instance of the listener asking me questions, I thought as we were going back and forth, that we were co-learners on a journey and having a conversation. And I was delighted, therefore, to be part of the conversation. Then, then it became evident that I was going to keep being asked questions because they really were intended for me to prove my belief system to this person. Now, one of the things I've come to grips with as I've gotten older is I am perfectly willing and delighted to share my belief system but I'm actually unwilling to try to prove it to anyone because my belief system is true for me. 
The speech that is given in Secondhand Lions rings true to me, not because of the details, he says. I don't believe that good always wins over evil, though I wish it did, and I ultimately think God will prevail. So maybe that is good winning over evil in the long term. But unfortunately, I don't believe it always wins in our day-to-day existence. And that true love never dies is not something that's particularly meaningful to me. In the narrative of the story, it makes a lot of sense and it's very powerful, but it's not something that's particularly meaningful to me. But the speech still carries great power for me because I believe that the things that I believe to be true don't need to be proven. I believe we were all created by the same God. I believe that God took flesh and lived in the form of a person who we call Jesus. I believe that truth of his life was about love and relationship, love for every single person, no exceptions, and a relationship God longs to have with every single person, no exceptions. That's what I believe to be true. I can't prove it. I don't have a desire to prove it. I'm certainly willing to share it if you'd like to hear about it. What I have come to understand is that these things are true for me. I used to want the word true to mean that it's independently verifiable by everyone in the world, independently verified by everyone. When the speech said it doesn't matter if it is true, I found that that portion of the speech shook the foundation of what I believe to be important, that true is what is confirmed by independent observations, that the value of something being true is really given value because other people have affirmed it. But what the uncle's speech really means is that you can't go through life wanting the world to verify the things that you believe are true. I believe my wife loves me. I believe music has the power to stir me in a way that defies an explanation that looks at the simple sum of its parts. I believe that every bit of time I spend with my grandchildren, no matter how exhausting, is an absolute gift from God. And I can't prove any of these as true to anyone other than myself. But that doesn't change that they are rock-solid truths for me. I remember a number of years ago, I was thinking about buying a car, and I was discussing this with another guy who was also in the same place, wanting to buy a car. And so we were very similar. We both had families. We had young kids and needed a car. And I mentioned in our conversation that I wanted to buy a car that was responsible to the community. And he said, oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? And I said, well, I want it to have good gas mileage because I want it to have as little impact as it can on the environment. And I've read about how the disparity of car size can create an inequality when two cars get into an accident with each other. And he said, oh, not me. I think it's great to think about those things, and I admire you for it. But as a dad, I literally have only one job, and that is to protect my family. If I could buy a car that's three times the size of anything else on the road and consequently keep my kids safe in any crash, I would in a heartbeat. If other people get hurt in the accident, that's not my problem. My problem, my responsibility, my job is to take care of my family. Whoever's in that car, they need to protect their kids. I need to protect mine. If someone else gets hurt, but we don't in an accident we have together, I've done my job and I don't lose a minute of sleep over it. Now, if you met this guy, you would really like him. He's truly a delightful guy. But his truth is that life is about protecting what is yours and everyone is on their own. 
What is clear is that he and I had different understandings of what was true. And both of us were attempting to live by that truth, though they differed for us. Both of us were trying to be good people according to the truth that we believed in. Okay, let me take a moment to make a clarification. We often confuse what we believe as truth with what we believe as, well, I would say conclusion. Conclusions are what we believe about people landing on the moon. What's the primary cause of homelessness? What's the proper response to a pandemic? Is global warming real? Who won the election? The problem is that we get so worked up by our conclusions that we often allow them to replace our truths. Now, here's the really important part. Every single one of us has a set of underlying principles that we believe to be true. We all, every one of us, no exception, have guiding principles that drive the decisions of our daily existence. But, but, and it's a really big but. Only some people choose to go through a process of asking themselves three key questions. First question, what do I really believe is true? Not just what do I say I believe is true. What do my behavior and choices say my real truth or truths is or are? Now, this is most difficult of the three because we can be really good at deceiving ourselves. I can't count the number of men I have known who proclaim that family is everything as their truth and then actually pursue their career as the ultimate truth, neglecting family at almost every turn. So it takes a lot of work to evaluate our life choices and see what they tell us about our truth. Once you have that information, you move on to the next question. Is that what I want my truth to be? Many years ago, when I was in seminary, I got a computer program to track spending. Now, I was a student. My wife worked to support us. I didn't have a job, had no income, and I was trying to discover where our money went. After a couple of months, I printed a report, and the largest category in our spending, I wasn't giving money to the church. That wasn't the largest category. It wasn't on basic necessities. It was unnerving because it was entertainment. I couldn't believe it. It shook to the core what I believed about myself. I would have said my faith was the most important thing in my life. I would have said the vast majority of our income went to our just surviving. But the reality of the decisions we were making didn't support what I wanted to believe about my life. We spent a large portion of our income just doing things that entertained ourselves. Then, if you complete your inventory of truth and you don't like everything you find, you come to the final question. How do I go about changing the truths that I don't like? Now, any faith group, any church group, any denomination has some of their own truths. And I don't mean to sound like, oh, you should all work independently to find your own truth and have nothing to do with any faith group. I'm a part of a faith group, and I find it very helpful, the kind of basic things they believe in that they hold true, because it gives me some guidance. And your faith group having its own truths is fine as good, as long as, I should say this as a caveat, as long as what they say about their guiding truth and what they do 
as long as those two things are mostly in alignment, not 100% in alignment, we all have problems with that, but mostly in alignment. Now, I would also argue that whatever faith group you choose as your spiritual home should be helping you through the process of regularly asking these three questions. What do I really believe as true? Then once you've discovered it, once you've honestly done that inventory, is that what I want it to be? And if not, and for most of us, there's going to be some stuff we don't want it to be. Then we go, how do I go about changing the truth I don't like? That's what your spiritual journey, that's what your faith group ought to be helping you work through regularly. Now, why ask these questions? Why are these so important? Well, first of all, because you know I really like questions, but also because the faith journey we follow is so inextricably tied to the questions we ask. Don't you think? That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is dan at skypilot.zone, and I'd love to hear from you. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. Thank you.